Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to the second season of Book Tour. It's Halloween in Wichita, and our host for this episode is Watermark Books, who just celebrated their 40th anniversary. I'll talk with bookstore owner Sarah Bagby and Newberry award-winning author Claire Vanderpool. Thanks for listening. Let's start the show. So I have a couple of uh, business, you know, little housekeeping things first. We had an event at the Orpheum, and there were 1,200 people, and we got them all out in 15 minutes. And here's how we did it. We had one section go and one section go at the same time, and then we'll have the center section go each aisle. So if you'll be patient and we do it that way, it will run so smooth, and you will be very happy. The books will be at the back to pick up, and I just love the idea. All signed, by the way. They are all signed. just like they're really legitimate. Oh, gorgeous, fun. gorgeous signatures. They're gorgeous. You, guys are, you know, you're going to frame them. Okay, and I want to say that um, John Grisham was uh, generous enough to sign extra copies of Rooster Bar and Camino Island. You know, the Christmas season, I'm sorry to say, starts before Thanksgiving, but you might want to think about that. Okay, I have to thank some people for this really special night. First of all, all of you for supporting Watermark Books and Cafe and our events and John Grisham. I want to thank Doubleday Books and Todd, who is an amazing person and um, has been very supportive of Wichita, sending a lot of authors. Um, I want to thank Abode Venue. They are great partners for us, and I hope you find that you're comfortable here and um, most of the time. And also... <laughs> Kyle knows what I mean. Um, and the coverage, the book coverage from Cam UW, Beth Golay, and Suzanne Tobias from the Wichita Eagle. They are very supportive of literary culture in Wichita. And finally, I want to um, thank my staff. Okay, I need to go really quick here because you didn't come to hear me. We're, we're in no hurry, okay? <laughs> this is my podcast, okay? So <laughs> take your time, breathe deeply. We're in no hurry. There's no, there's no time limit. There's no deadline. There's I no schedule. There's no agenda. There's no itinerary. There's nothing. There's no script. No. You can't screw up a podcast. I've learned that. So just, to, just relax. Thank you. <laughs> How could he tell? Okay, first I want to introduce Claire Vanderpool, who I can count. I am lucky enough to have known Claire since 1996, and we moved our store to Lincoln Heights Village. And I have seen her four children grow up. I have watched her from a budding writer to a published author, to uh, of the author of two middle grade novels, Moon Over Manifest, which is one of the rare first novels that won the Newbery Award in 2011. And if and if you haven't read it, you know, uh, you do need to. You'll, if you have, you know why it's funny. You know why ha it has a lot of twists and turns, and you think you have it figured out, but you really don't because you are putty in Claire's hands. <laughs> she has also written a book called Navigating Early. Claire is also an active member of the literary community of Wichita. She is, uh, there are a lot of writers in Wichita, but I'm telling you, she comes to see a lot of authors that come to Watermark. She is involved in book clubs and schools and talking to people. And I really appreciate that for supporting other authors as well who come to Wichita. I'm proud her, to call her my friend, and I am really proud to burst her talent, to boost her talent to all of you. Burst my bubble. I'm not going to burst her bubble because, uh, yeah. Okay, we're going to get rid of that. And now I want to say that the author, um, the author bio, if you've gone to Watermark Books and bought your books online from Watermark Books and Cafe, which I'm telling you you can in case you're buying them somewhere else right now, you know, we have a very good and robust website. But John Grisham's bio, uh, when you click on one of his titles to purchase on the Watermark website, says, John Grisham is the author of 31 novels, one work of nonfiction, a collection of stories, and six novels for young readers. Little understated? <laughs> I think so. 
I'm glad to say that Watermark has been in business for 40 years, and that means we have sold your books since the beginning of your career. But in this introduction, I wanted to tell you something that maybe you don't know about John Grisham. So I reached out to um, a really good friend of mine who is the owner of Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi. His name's Richard Howarth. He's also a good friend of John's. And I asked him for an anecdote because I didn't want to sound like Wikipedia. So since um, Richard has a sto Southern storytelling gene as well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to read to you a little story about John Grisham. I get the last word, okay? Yeah. You do, you do, and we won't tell. Okay, I said, I asked, um, so Richard told me this. I met John through a mutual acquaintance immediately after A Time to Kill was accepted for publication by Winwood Press, whom no one's ever heard of, except in connection with A Time to Kill. It had a first printing of $5,000, and which was an, and it was also the imprint of a religious publisher called Fleming Revell. His friend, John's friend, was a lawyer and said John needed my help. So they drove to Oxford. He lived about 60 miles from here, and I met him. He said to me, my first book is coming out and, dead serious, I need you to sell 500 copies. <laughs> Already he had begun to calculate what he needed to get on the bestseller list. <laughs> I said, we need to sit down and talk because I am not going to sell 500 copies. And he was like, okay, then what do I need to do? I told him how we needed a plan and marketed an event for the book signing and said, plus, we have to develop some enthusiasm for your book, and no one on our staff has even read it. <laughs> it gets better. No, true. It gets, it's, <laughs> within a week, he drove back with an unbound galley in a box and said, here you go. I was mad at myself. This is Richard, the bookstore owner. I was mad at myself for having got myself in this far and reluctantly took the box home, ate dinner, sat down, pulled some sheets out of the box, cursing myself and the guy who wrote them. <laughs> Next thing I knew, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was, what the hell? I couldn't put it down. And I knew he had written something we could confidently put in the hands of our customers. There's much more to the story, but the rest is pretty much history. <laughs> the great thing about John is he's never forgot that we tried to help with that first book. And he's done many events and through Doubleday shipped to us enough signed copies that I believe I could fill the store with them, about 60,000 cubic feet, all of which we've sold. His generosity and friendship to us, to independent bookstores, to the larger world of books and readers, to his home state of Mississippi in a variety of ways, most of which no one ever hears about, are remarkable things that, books aside, we will never forget. Richard. So I give you John Grisham. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you for um, the hospitality, the invitation, the uh, wonderful time we've had this afternoon. They had a ball um, talking and drinking coffee and, and gossiping uh, while I was slaving away like a dog signing all these books. <laughs> I'm having a great time with this book tour because I'm going to uh, great bookstores I've never seen before, uh, and I love to do that wherever I go. I always um, find the bookstore and hang out in the bookstore. I love independent bookstores. I, I go way back to there, to the beginning. And it was the independents who uh, really got behind, uh, not, not really a time to kill, but the firm. When the firm came out in March of 91, the independents got behind it, and it soon became a bestseller. And so I love to go visit these stores and to say thanks to you, to your staff, to the customers, the fans who have been buying the books now for a long time. And I'm also uh, having a great time as I travel around uh, meeting local authors. Uh, most I've never met before. Writers don't really hang together because it's a very weird bunch. <laughs> to, to, 
strange people, so we don't, and you, you work alone. It's, it's very lonely, so you don't really collaborate, so we don't really make a lot of friends. And, uh, but it's, it's fun to go around the country and, and, uh, and, and meet uh, Claire today for the first time. Yesterday was Candace Millard in Kansas City, and last week it was Hampton Sides in Memphis, and uh, tomorrow night is Sue Grafton in Lexington, Kentucky, and um, next week in Washington is David Baldacci at Politics and Prose. So this is, you know, I did, I did 13 stores back in June with Camino Island, and we did a, we, just like this, we did the, the event, we recorded all of it, we kind of cleaned it up, edited a bit, and we, we um, drop it as a podcast. And so it's, it's called Book Tour uh, with John Grisham, and we have 13 of them up from the spring. We'll put these up in a few weeks, and uh, if, you, if you don't get enough tonight, you can listen to it over and over. Um, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but it's... Uh, that's, so uh, that, 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 there'll be a record of what we do here tonight, but it's, it's a lot of fun talking to other writers, some of, some of whom I've known and met, um, but to talk about writing, to talk about what we do, how we do it, how we got started, what was our lucky break, uh, what are you reading, um, book selling, you know, things like that. I always like to start off with um, the bookseller and the store because we're, sh- you know, we're kind of showcasing uh, the great independence, and you, we're lucky that you're lucky to have one here. And I'm, all of you know the store, Watermark, but I'm, you know, for... But just think of the vast audience out there who listen to the podcast. You know, at least 500 people. You want to, um, so tell me about the store. How long have you had it? The store's been in business since 1977. I started there when I was five. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I really kind of took over running it when I was about 27. And I was very young. We were downtown in this great building. You guys all know it. I'm ready. I have dreams about moving back down. I haven't, you know. Um, And, you know, the business has changed so much since those early days when you went into Richard's store. But I can say that it's always been a challenge. The store thrives because of the community that it builds and the customers that we have, the relationships we have with authors. And um, because people love to read. And so, what else? Why, why did you move from downtown to where you are now? The downtown really died. Retail, we were the last holdout. Um, and it became obvious that we needed to move. In, you know, at first we moved to a major thoroughfare. I, you know, you guys, we had these little stores in Rock Road. We had three stores at one time, which don't ever do that. Um, <laughs> And, and we were on a major road, and I have to take it as a compliment that there were two Barnes and Nobles and a Borders on that same road, because it was intentional. Right. And they're gone, except for one of them. So, you know, we did it. But, but um, we, then we wanted to get back into a neighborhood. So we moved back. We had an opportunity to move into Lincoln Heights Village. Um, Gessler's was moving out, and we wanted that space. And we completely changed the space. And now we're in this great neighborhood that is very supportive. It's fun to be in College Hill. Um, you know, it's, it's really about the community and the community reader, of readers, the community that books build for people. I, I stopped by this afternoon. I had time to go see. It's a beautiful store. As I, you know, roamed around, I kind of wanted to grab a book and a cup of coffee and sit down in a chair and start reading, you know, just make myself at home. It's that kind of a feel to it. Has anybody ever done that out there? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, go do it tomorrow. Um, um, yeah, and has, has anybody met their new friend there, like their best friend? So when you started 40 years ago, how many independents were there? In Wichita? Yeah. Uh, two. Really? One was around the corner. And I just, you guys remember uh, Rector's? Okay, I just learned why a lot of the business people, men, went to that store instead of ours from one of the, uh, my sales reps, and innocently I didn't know, but yes, it was because of the magazine selection. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I was going to comment. I, I, that, I, 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 there were some things missing from your magazine section today. I, <laughs> I, I was looking for some of my favorite magazines and couldn't find them. I'm so sorry. You know, we had them downstairs. 
Right, would you ever move back down? I mean, downstairs, downtown seems revitalized and you, you busy. You know, and... I would move back downtown, but um, I wouldn't have two stores. So it would be the right moment. The, the thing that would really be best is if I could have an event venue, although I love my partners here at Abode really well. If I could do something with that store downtown, because it's still full of books. It's right. open by appointment or chance. It's full of rare books, manuscripts, maps, um, and it's it's a wonderful building. It's it's just a wonderful building. What's your biggest challenge in the next five or ten years? Um, well, keeping a customer base that's active and involved, and thinking about the value when they spend their money of what they're getting. I think that's a big deal. People's time, and also, um, I think. Um, I mean, the things that keep me going, how about if I talk about that, the things that help me thrive are my customer base and people's lust for good books and reading and wanting to talk about them. My, my um, partnerships with publishers and their support for sending authors to the store so that we can have something as an added value for customers and um, my staff, my dedicated, really dedicated staff, who are, um, you know, we call it psychic compensation, which is what we get because it's a business that, you know, it, you, you know. So I can say those are the three things that keep us going. The, and, and those are the three things that are really exciting. The, va the value of my staff, the value of my publisher relationships, and the value of what we can do for our community. Well, keep it up, okay? okay. You go I'll with keep it. trying. When I was talking about uh, uh, picking the six or seven or eight cities for, for this tour, as you might want to call it, not much of a tour, but uh, uh, I wanted to do it in the Midwest, and we, we relied on the, uh, the sales staff at Doubleday and the publicity department to kind of pick some of the stores. I'd never been to Wichita. And um, I was told uh, plainly that you've got to go to Wichita and you've got to go to Sarah's store. And so I said, great. And they you know, said all the nice things about the store. And we all, then we had to pick the, um, pick the local writer, you know, to come be our pal tonight for the show. And um, uh, it was made plain to me very quickly up front that if you go to Wichita, you have to have Claire Vanderpool. She, she is, she's, she's the one for Wichita. So you're here. I'm here. <laughs> and we're both glad, really glad to be here with you. And so thanks for coming. Yes. I'm delighted to be here. So let's talk about writing. You want to? Yes. Can I say one thing first? Or Listen, from now, from, for, the, for the next hour, anybody can say anything, okay? All right, it's, I'm going to jump in. There are no rules. I don't want to wait till the end and we'll get boxed out. But first of all, Sarah, if you guys, all the authors that come, the Amor Tolls, the you know, these great authors who, Wichita is not the easiest place to get to. And the reason they come is Sarah and the people at Watermark. And I'm sure book sales figure into it, but it's personalities. And it's that they have a fun time when they come. And thank you for coming because, you know, how great is this for you to take your time, come to Wichita, again, not the easiest place to get to, but the funnest place on <laughs> Halloween, so good for you. <laughs> We did drive down Broadview. Okay. We did. Well, I saw Broadview. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm coming back to Wichita. I tell you. There's some pretty scary people around here. I felt sorry for the little kids out walking around tonight. They could be, they could be horrified, terrified. But really, this that's is why we're very, here. Very gracious of you, and I, I want to thank both. I'm of you. having fun. Um, I quit work 27 years ago, and I've been in the kitchen ever since. And my wife really wants me out of the house. I mean, she really. <laughs> She's been dreaming of a long book tour for years, and she is, just leave, you know, leave for a while. Go, go out and, and sell books. So uh, that's one reason I'm here. So what are you working on? I knew that was going to be your first question. Uh, I am working on another. This will be my third book. Um, my, my first two are considered middle grade, but I really, uh, I don't really consider myself a specific age group of writer. I've been told that my books span very broad. Uh, in terms of readership, I've had a lot of uh, people in their 80s who have read 
especially Moon Over Manifest, and I love it when they, well, actually, it was at the Historical Museum, <laughs> and all, it was the senior citizen group, and shortly after Moon Over Manifest had come out, and, you know, I would talk about something in particular, and they were all nodding their heads because it was familiar, yeah. and so I'm, I appreciate that a lot, but the, the book I'm working on now is actually set in Mississippi, and... Um, I don't, I don't usually say a whole lot about what I'm writing, but... Uh, I don't either. I mean, I, yeah. uh, it's, it's not good to talk about what you're writing. Yeah. You talk to death. Yeah. So, it, this one, you know, each book, um, I, I kind of console myself. I feel like this one has taken me a long time, but then I uh, think Obviously, back, I mean, you're like five years between books. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> that's, that's a long you, you time. You really want to go down that road? And, and these, <laughs> these are not thick books either, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I get, I get that. I, they're, they're complicated. They're deep and all that. But, no, but, you know. It takes me a while. I am, I am not the most introverted person. So when one of my kids comes home and says, hey, let's go do such and such, I'm like, yeah, let's go. So, you know, it beats I, writing, huh? I'm not the yeah. most disciplined person in that regard. But, yeah, this one is set in Mississippi. Um, so there have been certain challenges with this. I did two research trips down to the south, and uh, my sister and my friend C.Y. are my research buddies. And, I bet those are real productive trips if oh. you're taking people. <laughs> it's just a road trip. It's a girl trip, right? It is a girl trip, but it's, it's research. They went with me to Maine, and that was the research for navigating early. But uh, the research for this one was particularly interesting. I do have a, a little bit of a Harper Lee stalker story I could share with you about our research trip down there. We're sharing all stories. Okay, well, I'll, I'll make this kind of brief, although it wasn't really brief. Uh, we flew into Atlanta, and I didn't really know what the story was about yet, so I didn't have specific things I wanted to uh, see or, or, you know, check into. So we just kind of planned a literary trip. So we went to Margaret Mitchell's home in Atlanta, uh, in that museum, and then we drove to Jackson, Mississippi, to Eudora Welty's home. And then I think the third place was... Um, Probably with Monroeville, Alabama, and then we ended up in Milledgeville, Georgia, so uh, for Flannery O'Connor. But when we were in Monroeville, um, you know, she's, she was still living at the time. And we went to the museum, and we're kind of asking questions in there, and this lady was, you know, you always hear about the people of, of the town being very protective and kind of keeping you at bay. So they weren't telling us much, but we struck up this friendship with the lady that worked in the um, gift shop. And I told her I'm a writer. I, I really wanted to, you know, give a book to Miss Lee. And so we left. We, we were done. We were getting ready to leave. And this lady followed us outside as if, like, you know, she won't be heard. And she said, girls, I really want to help you, but Miss Lee is now in a, an assisted living uh, place. And um, so we were like, okay. And getting ready to leave town. And I said, you guys, we cannot leave until we at least ask one person where her house is. I just wanted to see her house. So we stop in this little hole-in-the-wall place, and we ask this man, and he's like, oh, yeah, he gives us the address. And so we drove up the hill, saw her house, and then um, I drove back just to make sure it was the right house. Well, it turns out this guy was the, the sheriff in town. <laughs> I'm sure he was kin to her. To her. No, no, he was not. The, he was African-American, so I know he wasn't related, but uh, Sergeant Horn. Don't bet on it. Sergeant Horn. <laughs> And uh, he said, well, girls, you ought to just go to the nursing home and see her. And we're like, you think they'd let us? Oh, I don't see why not. So, well, I'm like, so much for them, you know, keeping her on the DL. And so we thought, we'll, we'll do that. And I said, but I really want to give her a book. And I hadn't brought a book with me. And there's no bookstore in town. So I said, let's go to the library, and I'll steal one of my books. <laughs> <laughs> if they have one. Well, CY and Henry talked me out of that, and they said, no, you have to ask permission. So we asked, could, one of my books was there, and I said, could I have this one, and I'll send you one to replace it. No, ma'am. Oh, no way. No. <laughs> I said, I'll send you two. No, ma'am. I'll send you two of that one and one of my new ones. Okay. <laughs> so we take the book, but we didn't want to go alone, so we go back to find Sergeant Horn, who's now at the barber shop. And he comes out and he says, girls, I got a baseball game tonight. And so anyway, he decides, yes, as soon as he gets his haircut, he gives us a police escort down to the nursing home. 
And that's where, as we call her, Nurse Ratchet shut the whole thing down, would not let us <laughs> in. But she said she would give her my book. So uh, there is a signed copy of my book with the Monroeville Library stamp <laughs> that Harper Lee did receive. So that was, that was as close as we got. That's, that's a good story. That's a good story. Probably uh, 20 years ago. Uh, the, the Time to Kill came out in 1989, and it was a flop. I mean, it didn't sell. Uh, we, we couldn't give well, the books didn't away. Didn't Richard sell 500 copies? <laughs> Richard sold 44 copies at the book signing that day. Yeah. That's and that, that's, that's a good day. That's a good day. Yeah. We were very pleased. It was, it was my first book signing in a store. Um, and when we, when we pulled up at the square in Oxford, Oxford has a beautiful, picturesque courthouse square. And Square Books is right on the corner of, of the square. And we, my wife and I, we drove around one time. We both went to school. We were school at Ole Miss, so we know the area very well. We drove around slowly to see if anybody was in the store. And, and we could not see anybody in the store, okay? And there's an upstairs, and we said, oh, God, this is going to be awful. Nerve, a nerve, total nervous wreck. Okay? And so we finally parked and took our time and walked in the store, front door. And, you know, a couple of clerks, but nobody, there's nobody there. And if we just felt awful. And walked upstairs where they have the coffee bar and cafe. And my sister, who lives about two hours away, was a nurse at the time. And she brought the whole staff with her. And there were like 30 people <laughs> upstairs, uh, you know, a bunch of women off work having fun. And we turned it into a great party. And we sold 44 books. And it was, um, <laughs> it was a big day. Because later, I, 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 went to, I took a time to kill around the state of Mississippi. I went to 35 libraries trying to sell a bunch of books I had in the trunk of my car. And uh, I had several days where we had zero book sales. Have you done that? A goose egg? Mm, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to hear you're that, lucky. <laughs> what's, your, what's your slowest day? Uh, I've had to buy a few myself, but... Well, that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't count, okay? Oh, I hear you. Yeah, maybe a few. Oh, a few. Claire, hug the, kiss the mic. Kiss the mic? Yeah. Okay. Well, so anyway, as I was saying before I got distracted, uh, when, the time to kill, when Time to Kill came out, um, it, it, it did flop. We couldn't sell the books. Uh, and then a few years later, after the first wave of, you know, bestsellers and movies and all that, and th things were different, um, we were still living in Oxford, so it was before 1994, and I got a book in the mail one day. It was a, it was a copy of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. It was not a first edition, but it was signed uh, by Harper Lee. She said something to the effect, Dear John, enjoy the time to kill Harper Lee. And just, and I thought, that's pretty cool. That's, that's pretty cool. cool. So you, uh, you spent a lot of time, obviously, researching and not writing. Right? I, I mean, what, you know, you, right? I do. I like a lot of research, yeah. Um, I, you know, in recent years, I do, I cut myself a little slack because my kids are at the stage where they're leaving the house. And so, you know, I think I give myself probably a little too much Isn't it much wonderful when they leave the house? In that regard. <laughs> um, yeah, it's going to be, I've got one left at home, so. Um, no, but I, I have, uh, actually, I've listened to some of your um, sentiments on writing and, and the, the discipline and tried to uh, modify my writing schedule in, in recent months and years. So, you know, mornings and mornings are pretty good. But, um, yeah, it's challenging for me because I, I know you outline. We, I've heard that. Um, and I don't outline until I'm kind of more familiar with the story. And uh, so it takes me a while. I call it... Um, where I can get to where I have something to hang my hat on. That's just the expression I use. So for me, once I feel like in a story I have uh, something to hang my hat on plot-wise and thematically as far as what's going on with the character, then I can get myself an outline and take off. So really, that's, I feel like that's where I am right now with this book. When you write, do you have someone who reads your stuff? Somebody you trust? Uh, well, my husband's standing over there. It's not him. <laughs> <laughs> Under the bus, buddy. Under the bus. <laughs> that didn't take long, did it? He is, 
he is wonderful in many ways. Uh, he's practically built our house from scratch, but uh, yeah, he's not the best one to help critique. I've been in some wonderful critique groups. Wonderful. Um, there was one called the Milton Center when I was the you know very very early stages and. Um, there were several of us that would meet, meet every week. And critique what? Each other? Yes. Yeah, but these That sounds were, awful. Oh, it was, no, it was great. I was, I was the low, low man on the totem pole. These were people who were much farther along the writing path than I was. And I learned vicariously through everybody else's. I've participated in a critique group with some other children's writers, which was wonderful. Um, right now, my son is interested in writing, and he and I are in a little critique group together that has been wonderful in different ways. It was his turn to read last week, so that was exciting. What do you, you, you have four kids, right? The youngest is how old? 17. Oldest is how old? 23. Okay, so they've obviously read, I assume they've read your, your, your books, right? And I say that cautiously because my kids don't read mine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> they, have all, they have all read all of them except Paul has not read the most recent one. So What's their reaction to, what, to your books? Uh, I think they, they enjoy it. Well, she's saying thumbs up. Yeah, they enjoy them. They've certainly enjoyed all the fun travel that's happened right. since the Newberry. Um, yeah, they, they are fully on board. Do they critique them? Well, one of them does. <laughs> Which one? The one that's the oldest and the What's one his that's name? writing. Luke. Stand up, Luke. Take a bow. <laughs> Yay, Luke. So Luke, Luke has the courage to critique your books. What does he say? Uh, well, I remember... I'm trying to start some trouble. I remember sen- uh, when he read Navigating Early, the second book, uh, he was maybe 19 when that book came out and uh, said he liked it better than Moon Over Manifest, liked it better than the first book. And I said, oh, why? Thinking it maybe it was because it was you know, a boy main character. And he said... Well, the writing. The writing was a lot better. Really, had, you've improved a lot. So You've improved a lot? I've improved a lot, yeah. That was post-Newberry. I had improved quite a bit. So, you know. And if I call him, like, if I'm struggling with something, um, you know, a story point or something, I'll, I, I will call Luke on occasion, and, and uh, he will tell me in no uncertain terms, yeah. Mom. No, you're just, it's just all wrong. You just need to back up and start over that part, you know, so. I tell, I tell students or I tell aspiring writers, um, I don't give a lot of advice, but there, there are a few little things you learn as you go along, and I tell them, you've got to find somebody who loves you. And it can be a spouse, a child, a friend. It can be your high school English teacher. It can be somebody who loves you and wants you to succeed uh, and who enjoys reading what you're writing, mm-hmm. and who can be brutally honest. And who is that my wife. for you? Yeah, my, wife. I was lucky. Yeah. I was lucky right off the bat with uh, Renee because she read the first chapter of The Time to Kill on a legal pad uh, 30-some-odd years ago. And I was a nervous wreck because I, you know, I showed it to somebody. Uh, she didn't know I was writing a book because I never talked about writing a book. I never thought about writing a book. And I, I wrote this first chapter. And I gave it to her one night. And I was so nervous, I left the house, you know, while she was reading it. And I, and I came back, and I said, you know, what, what do you think? And she said, uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. She said, I'd like to read some more. I said, okay, I'll go write some more. I've only got one chapter. Uh, and that started a process that went on for three years. I would write a chapter, and, and when she could find the time, she would read it. And so she knew when I wasn't writing. And there were some gaps uh, over, over the three-year period. There were some gaps where I put it down, and I didn't want to go back, and I was busy doing, you know, with a career. Uh, I just didn't have – I would get discouraged. I used to walk in bookstores, you know, and see uh, all these big, beautiful New York Times books on the wall, and I would think, you know, um, who wants to hear from me? What do I have to say? It's impossible. It's impossible to get published. And so I tell – students that are aspiring writers today, uh, it's not impossible because every year there are going to be several hundred debut novels. Publishing has to have the new voices, the new writers every year. Publishing is always desperate for the new, uh, you know. John Grisham. Well, yeah. yeah. Claire Vanderpool. Yeah, we need one every three or four years to get people in the store. You know, you you need that. So there's always uh, a demand for good writing if you can 
if, you, if, you're, if what you're writing is good, somebody is eventually going to notice it, somebody along the way, uh, if you're persistent. And if no one notices after a few years, maybe you should take a long, hard look at what you're doing. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's one of my, uh, I think, important pieces of uh, advice is to find somebody that you really um, trust who will be, and you've got so many kids. I mean, they're, they're going to be honest with you, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, trust me. I came downstairs with a different outfit on, and I, they were honest with me. Yeah. No. Oh, you have those kind of kids, right? <laughs> my kids, my son's 34. He's a lawyer. My daughter's 31. She's a school teacher. Um, we don't talk about, I mean, there's so many of them now. We, we don't talk about the books. Um, occasionally, they'll mention one, you know, I give them a free book every time they come out. Uh, <laughs> autographs. So I, you know, I don't know what they do with them. Um, have have uh, when you're, let's see, how old were your kids when your first books came out? When the firm was? The firm was 91, so my son was so pretty young. eight, my daughter was five. Yeah. Did, did any of them ever do a book report on your books? or? Not to my knowledge. Uh, my daughter, uh, her first day of kindergarten, they went around the class and they asked, each kid to tell what your, what your mom and dad did, what, you, what were their jobs, you know. And uh, my daughter, who has never been shy about anything, but she stood up and she um, got choked up because her dad doesn't do anything. <laughs> I mean, I, I never left the house, you know. Uh, so we had to work through that. Um, he doesn't have a job. He just yeah. he just writes. Mom does all the work. Yeah. 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 And so uh, you fast forward some I don't know, twenty five years later, she's she was teaching school. Her first year of teaching school, and she had a bunch of fourth graders at a school in Raleigh where she lives. And over dinner one night, she asked me if I could write suspense for kids. She said there are a lot. She she really pushes reading. And she said, uh, there's so many choices for kids. There's you know, historical fiction, there's fantasy, there's all these books that she's pushing. But she couldn't find any good suspense. And I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. And about that time, my wife and I were helping her stock her library in her classroom. Um, she had like 24 fourth graders, a big public school in Raleigh. And so she was, had all these books. And so we went to the bookstore, and we found a, a full set of uh, 85 Hardy Boys Mysteries, 85. Well, I have a keen sense of the marketplace, okay? So I'm thinking, and they're still in print? You know, it's a series? Maybe I can't write 85, but I can, you know, I can write a lot of them, and maybe they'll stay in print forever. And so um, that was my thinking when I started writing the Theodore Boone series, uh, the 13-year-old kid who thinks he's a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, five or six of those, I haven't won any awards but we've, we've sold some books. What is middle grade? Middle grade, I think, is considered maybe like fourth to eighth grade. Um, so 10 to 12, 13? Probably, yeah. When I finished the first Theodore Boone book, I had no idea. You know, I'd never written for kids before. And I turned it in. They said, I thought it was YA. And they said, no, it's not YA. It's middle grade. And I said, what is middle? I never heard of middle grade before. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's age groups? Yeah, yeah. But like I say, you know, they, they kind of, Stretch. Do you want to write for why? You know, this my second book actually won a um, Prince Honor, which is more of a YA age group of an award. Oh, more awards. Huh? Sorry, okay. take to drop that. <laughs> I like the way you just kind you know, of dro when, dropped that in there. When okay. you only have two books published, John, you have to take your kudos where you can get them. So, um, and, but that one is the older age group. So like I say, I mean, they're kind of fluid, I think. As far as YA, I don't know. I was really surprised when it got that because I always think of YA as kind of your edgy, you know, upper teen kind of book. So I was surprised that mine fell in that category. But They're remarkably edgy for YA. The teen and YA are two different, yeah. you know, categories. And they are edgy. I mean, th that is a genre where issues are that are not, that seem, um, you know, not acceptable for adult readers or women's fiction as 
as which is a weird title anyway, which is a weird category anyway. But they do suicide, you know, um, language, gender fluidity, language, some violence, violence um, emotional, you know, um, extremes. It, it's a uh, yeah, it's a place does it, where does it worry you, or should it, I mean, should should teens have access to those types of books? Well, okay. You may not agree with me, but I don't really worry too much about it because I think kids self-censor. I mean, I really honestly do. I think that if there's something very uncomfortable, I do it. If there's something uncomfortable, I'm not going to finish reading it. Right. And if it is uncomfortable, maybe you need to deal with it um, or, or find somebody to talk to about it. But no, I don't worry about it. They're going to hear the language anyway. They're going to see the violence anyway. Well, I mean, TV, what you can see on TV is remarkable. Right. Um, and sometimes when you're, when you're reading, you bring your own imagination to it, to the book. I mean, everybody does that, and what, that's why it's so, such an intimate experience anyway. So if you have, I mean, it could do either validate you or inspire you or um, scare you. So... I don't, it doesn't worry me. I mean, there are so many issues in the world that, and no one, no two people are alike, and there are a lot of people that feel really lonely, and a book may be the only place you know, they can find validation I've, for an extreme situation. I've had some, I guess I read it in reviews or, you know, posts that people have put um, about my books, and it, it was almost the opposite criticism um, in terms of, Someone actually said that middle grade readers, so fourth to eighth grade, uh, he said he didn't think they could understand concepts like grace and redemption. And I found that shocking. I, so, you know, I think um, there's some, I think you can deal with a lot of deep issues and important issues, but I think there always has to be that element of, of hope and, you know, Redemption. I think sometimes if things stay a little too dark, that, that for me would be the problem. When The Firm came out in uh, 91, uh, my, my mother was uh, still alive. Um, she passed away two and a half years ago, and she was a huge presence in my life. I, had, I was blessed with great parents, and um, they had lived long, happy lives and raised a big family. Uh, but my, I was always about halfway afraid of my mom. We were all afraid to uh, step too far out of line. It was a very strict Southern Baptist upbringing, and it was good. Um, but my mom, um, you know, didn't tolerate any type of bad behavior, and um, none, until we got, we couldn't all, had, had five siblings, we couldn't wait to get to college to get away, <laughs> to get away from mom. Um, but, uh, you know, I had certain standards when I wrote uh, my first two books, things I was not going to put in the book, things I still don't put in books. And I had a lot of people tell me when they, they read The Firm, and, it, you know, it's a real suspenseful, page-turning book. It was designed to be that way. And, and um, when they, people would write me letters and say, I finished this book at 3 in the morning, and when I finished the book, I realized I could give it to my 15-year-old daughter or my 80-year-old mother because there's no language and, and there's no sex and the violence is, is you know, tastefully done. And I've, I've repeated this before for 25 years now. Um, there were a lot of reasons the firm was, was a... There were a lot of reasons the firm was a success, but uh, we sold a ton of books because they were clean. And uh, you know, the rooster bar is as clean as the firm. And although I do have a problem writing about sex, uh, it's very difficult. Men, men cannot write it. And uh, my wife has told me that many times before because... <laughs> Um, the, in Camino Island, there's a male protagonist and a female protagonist, and we're, you know you know they're going to end up together, okay? It's just inevitable. It's part of the story. So I got them finally to the bedroom, you know, and I got them to the big moment, and I'm staring at the screen thinking, what am I supposed to do now? I mean, I'm supposed to... <laughs> am I supposed to describe body parts? I mean, am I supposed to... <laughs> I can't do this, okay? You can't so... do that, yeah. So they, you know, they woke up the next morning in bed together. They had a good night's sleep. We're, we were doing sub-interview one time uh, 
for some news magazine, and my head, my, Renee, Renee was with me, okay, and uh, the journalist, I forget who it was, we were talking about this and the fact that there, there's no uh, sex in my books, okay? And Renee just could not help herself. She said, well, he doesn't write about sex because he knows so little about it. <laughs> I mean, talk about under the bus, would your husband? Talk about getting slaughtered on national television. <laughs> That's the worst cut of all. I can, I can give you some advice from my husband about that. Let's, uh, <laughs> no, let's, my, change, let's change something. My, um, <laughs> no, what, what, this is, you said I could tell a story. Um, my mom has given me the best advice in terms of writing. <laughs> she, you know, because all moms have their mom sings. Like, you know, don't use the good towels. And uh, we'd, we'd get French fries, you know, get the French fry smell out of the car, that kind of stuff. Or if we all pitch in, we'll be done in five minutes. And that kind of stuff. So... Mark and I went on this little romantic getaway to Kansas City, and there was some romance in the afternoon. So then we went to a concert in the evening, and we came back. The kids are cringing big time. Oh, they are, yeah. <laughs> Look at Grace. Look at her. Yeah. She has, like, I hate this story. So we get Just back. Just relax. Come on. It's like midnight, and he's thinking there's going to be more romance. And, and I, was, I said, don't you remember that? We, and he, he used one of my mom's lines. If we all pitch in, we'll be done in five minutes. <laughs> Five minutes. I'm impressed. <laughs> okay, let's get away from sex. I, I, have a <laughs> I have a question, though. Yeah. You know what offends me more? Just bad books. So I just had to throw that in. That self-censoring thing is good, but really, you know, there are a lot of good books that are scary, but there are a lot of bad books out there, and, you know, those are the ones that I worry more about. Anyway, on to uh, my question it is so fun to discover a new author, a debut author, whatever. I mean, how much fun do we have doing that? So you're in the bookstore, you're looking at these books, and you're thinking there doesn't need to be a new one. Claire, you come into the bookstore, and you look and browse constantly. Is there an author you have discovered recently that you just, that just set your hair on fire, you just wanted to share that with people, or you felt like helping, or, you know, that you felt that, Wow, well, this I, is a new author I've never read before. Absolutely. Um, and she was in recently, Eowyn Ivy. Uh, her book What's is her first name? Eowyn, as in it's the, it's the Lord of the Rings character, Eowyn Ivy, To the Bright Edge of the World. Uh, it's set in Alaska. She lives in Alaska. She was delightful. I loved the story. Uh, so I always love when I kind of discover someone before they're big, mm -hmm. as I felt like I did with you. I told you this afternoon, I came across the firm and read it straight through on my day off and totally sucked in. Nobody even, I hadn't even heard of you yet. Um, and one other book, speaking <laughs> so of... So 44 copies that sold them. Right, I was 45. Um, one other book, when you're talking about books that everyone can read, and this was one I came across years ago, but it's called Last Days of Summer. And it's by Steve Kluger. Every person in my family has read this book and absolutely loved it. So those would be... Some of the names I throw out. I just read, uh, just sort of discovered Amor Tolls. Uh, the last, uh, a gentleman in Moscow read that one first and then read The Rules of Civility, which came out, it was his first book. Uh, my wife was reading both of them like last winter and she kept raving about how good they were. And my daughter read both of them back to back and I finally got around to reading them and really enjoyed both of those. So it's always fun to discover a new writer. I just wondered who your favorite were. Yeah, recent favorites. Are you going to write for adults? Yeah, I feel like I already books, do. I, mean, I feel like I already do, honestly. What do you say, non-sex? Non-sex, yeah. Um, I just go with the story. I, I, to be honest, I mean, when I started on the you know, path to writing and hopefully publishing, I did see my, my book on the children's bookshelf. Um, other than that, I, I, I just approach it as writing the story. And I, I, don't, I don't really alter anything because it's a book for children. I don't, uh, other than maybe word choice on occasion, but uh, yeah, I feel like I, I already do. <laughs> was it a, a childhood dream to write? It was, yeah. There was a, an assignment we had in fifth grade um, to write a paragraph about what we wanted to be when we grew up. 
And my teacher was Sister Margaret, and uh, she was this really fun, spunky Irish nun. So I wrote two paragraphs. One was that I wanted to be a nun, and the other <laughs> was that I wanted to be a writer. And uh, so I don't really think I wanted to be a nun. I just loved her. Um, so that was a dream from a very early age. We were big readers. My mom taught us all to read before we started school. She'd take us to the library and very strict, you know, she would say, you can each only check out 20 books. <laughs> and so we'd come home with grocery sacks full of books and lay them all out and just, yeah, always loved reading. We moved a lot when I was a kid to various small towns throughout Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, and we always moved in the summertime because the, the construction company my father worked for would move us after school to wherever the next job was. And it was a good company. We, you know, we, we, were, we, were, we were secure. Uh, we moved into a new town, though, and my brothers, we'd get on our bikes, and we went to two places to scope out the Little League baseball field and the library. And we could judge the quality of life in any small town by the Little League baseball field and by how many books you could check out at the library. And the rules, you know, varied greatly. I also had a sister, so we would check out the mats, whatever we could, and haul them home and, and, and pass books around and just read like crazy. Mom was not too keen on television, even back in the early 60s. She just didn't like it. And so we didn't watch much television, but we, we read books nonstop. So, Are your children big readers? Uh, my daughter is especially. Uh, my son uh, did not rebel against us too badly, but the fact that I was a writer meant that he was not going to read anything, okay? <laughs> and um, he came home from college. Uh, he was about 20 years old. He went to UVA, so he was in town close to us. And he had a copy of the Da Vinci Code. And he said, have y'all read this? This is awesome. And we were stunned because he had never read anything. And, and, <laughs> or he had never admitted to reading anything. And we, we couldn't believe it. And that was when he started reading. And he, uh, he's become a big-time serious reader. Uh, reads all, the, there, there are books all over the house. I get probably 10 books a week. Uh, from um, real books or advanced reading copies or even galleys from editors and agents, and they just, they're just piled up around the house, and we kind of like that. I uh, wish I had time to, to read them all. Um, what are you reading now? Uh, I'm actually in between books because I'm trying to write, trying to finish sure you mine. Are. Sure you are. Trying to finish mine. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I'm hoping to finish, actually, a, a Wendell Berry book. Do you read Wendell mm -hmm. Berry at all? Mm -hmm. Um, I love Wendell Berry, uh, Hannah Coulter, Jaber Crow. Uh, there's one called A Place in Time that's short stories. That's the one I want to finish. I think uh, Wendell Berry has probably had the biggest effect on my writing life of any writer that I've read. We, you know, we try to read all the time. I try, I try to finish a book a week. I start a lot of books that I don't, I don't finish. I'm really becoming impatient with bad books. books. I don't like books that just don't work. And on Renee's side, her night table, she's got a stack of books, and I've got a stack of books, and we crawl in bed about 9.30, you know, we're going to really do some reading. And about 20 minutes later, you're just about, uh, you know, you're about to, you can't keep your eyes open. And, uh, of course, if we were all pitched in, it wouldn't take but five minutes. You know? <laughs> Words to live by. Use yeah. that line from now. I'll try, I'll try that. I'll try that when I get home. But, you know, you, you stay so busy during the day, especially with, you know, the, you know all your kids. It's, it's hard to read a lot at night. That's the best time for us yeah. to read. So you're, you are reading something right now, or you're just kind of I am. Stack? I'm done right now. When I go home, I'll start reading uh, Legacy of Spies by John Le Carre, okay. one of my all-time favorites. Uh, under that is uh, Testimony by Scott Turow. Um, the book came out a couple of months ago, his latest novel, Always Read Scott. And under that I have... Um, advanced reading copy of uh, James Lee Burke's Rob Robichaud. It's a, it's the next book comes out in a couple of months. So those are the next three. Mm -hmm. uh, Scott Turow is a buddy of mine, and um, really his, he was a pivotal moment in my career because in, when Presumed Innocent came out in 1990, uh, 1987, uh, it was the biggest book um, that summer. It came out the same summer of, of Bonfire of the Vanities, Tom, Tom Wolfe's book. Huge really summer. Saved, those two books saved Farrar Strauss. Yeah, saved Farrar Strauss. And, uh, and Scott had all this attention, a bestseller, really good book. Really, I enjoyed it. 
And I was trying to finish a time to kill and having some trouble and having motivational problems. And I was almost finished, but I had a big trial that knocked me off for a while. And um, when I was just electrified by the success of Presumed Innocent. And in a way of no envy, I was just determined to try to get my book finished. And uh, so I've, I've told Scott that story. So I've always kind of tried to keep in mind the way the way when you are able to achieve success, you have to take it serious because you don't know how you're going to inspire other people. And that's a, that's a very serious responsibility. And I always try to keep that in mind and, and have a certain amount of you know, professionalism in what I do and, and always keep in mind that younger eyes are, are watching. So. Do you have people contact you asking, you know, can I meet with you? Can we, will you help me, you know, for advice or... Only about twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm at a point where I can, um, um, I'm hard to get to. Yeah. You know, I just don't really enjoy a lot of attention. And um, the people who are important in my world can always find me, right. and nobody else can. And that's not a bad way to live. Mm -hmm. So I, I can really protect myself from a lot of, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff, yeah. But, but there's always people who, there are always people who, who find a way to, to ask for something. And I, often I try to help. A lot of times it was to read a manuscript. I mean, if you think bad books are getting published, you ought to read the unpublished manuscripts. I mean, <laughs> there, you know, you, you see them. We stop. Yeah, we, we see them. And, and uh, there, there's a lot of stuff being written, uh, especially with the Internet now and automatic self-publishing. You know, you write a book, you post it, it's published. And so everybody's a writer. And uh, there's a reason those books couldn't get published right. you know, oftentimes. Right, and, and it's true. I mean, a lot of people are writing, but the, the good people, I mean, good writers are discovered. Yeah. And because there are readers that are looking for good writers. I mean, you do need to feed the marketplace with new things. So, um, But I, have a qu I, I just want to ask you, um, indulge me for one minute, and tell us about why you wrote The Brewster Bar, why that subject. Could you just give us sure. the little... Sure. Uh, I'm always looking for an issue... Uh, that might, I might be able to wrap around a legal thriller and tell a good story and maybe bring some light to a certain issue. And I, I don't do that with every book. In fact, my wife will say, just stop preaching and write a novel or get off your soapbox and, you know, just whatever. Uh, but I, I was not really aware of the existence of law schools that are operated for profit. And um, I was not too uh, concerned or informed about this student debt crisis. And so I read an article in the Atlantic magazine three years ago about, it's called the law school scam. It was about for-profit law schools that charged big tuitions for education that's not that good to a lot of students who are unqualified who will not be able to pass the bar exam or find a job. And they finished law school after three years with $200,000 in debt and no prospects, and the, you, and, and, and the debt will never go away because the, 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 the for-profit education industry has a very strong lobby, and they went to Washington years ago, and they convinced Congress that student debt should not be discharged in bankruptcy. So it's going to follow you forever. And it's probably the only debt in America that's not discharged in bankruptcy. And so you've got students who are, who are graduating and, and they're in bad shape. So I, I said, this is irresistible. You know, this is just something I've got to write about. And that's, that's where the story started. I, I timed it in 2014 because the, the law school scam bubble is bursting right now. One of the for-profit law schools uh, closed in August. I think one or two are on probation with the ABA. And if they can't get ABA approval, the students can't qualify, qualify for federal loans. So they, the money dries up. So it's... It's kind of all coming down now, it, and it should. Uh, but it was just an irresistible topic for me to write about. It's really a good book. It's well, thank just... you. Of course, you wouldn't say that. You're a bookseller. You have well... To you have I'm kidding. I'm joking. You know, some people ask me if I like every book I read, and I will just say that I don't talk about the ones I don't like. Right, right, right. They ask me to review books all the time, and I've done a few. It's really hard work uh, because you've got to... Uh, Read the book with a critical eye. You've got to know the author's prior work and be able to compare. I mean, it's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of hard work for 500 bucks. Uh, you know, <laughs> or less. Or less, yeah. 
I mean, writers, writers review all the time, but I just, uh, I, they've asked me a couple times. I've said yes. I've waited on the book. I've got, you know, received the book, an advanced copy, read it, not like it. And I say, I'm not going to write some, I'm not going to do a bad review of somebody's book. There are too many other good books out there you can promote. Exactly. Just leave the bad ones alone. That's my, and leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> While you're at it, leave me alone. Thank you all so much. Uh, Thank you. Thanks to Sarah Watermark. Thanks to Claire Vanderpool. The podcast is uh, Book Tour with John Grisham. See y'all down the road. Bye bye. Thanks to my guests, Sarah Bagby and Claire Vanderpool. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe and listen to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. We'll see you down the road with Book Tour.